Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. Happy Labor Day if you're in the U.S. and are listening on the day this drops. The day after I wrote the last episode, my county health department mandated masks in schools. I was a little surprised at just how big of a relief it was to learn that I didn't have to keep fighting with my daughter's school about this. My comments still stand, though. There are still numerous districts, counties, and states that are refusing to take any measures, some countries possibly as well. I sincerely hope that wherever you are, that you and your family, be they by birth or by choice, are safe. Today we have book two of the Aeneid. As a reminder, I'm working from the Fitzgerald translation. When we last left our heroes, they were shipwrecked in Carthage, and Venus is plotting away to keep her son safe. Spoiler alert, it doesn't bode well for Queen Dido, but we'll get to that later. At the very end of book one, Dido asks Aeneas to tell his tale, and book two picks up with him doing just that. Aeneas isn't sure he can tell his story without crying, but he'll do his best, and honestly, he has just cause to say that it's a pretty sad beginning. He starts at the end of the Trojan War. The famous part that you probably thought was going to be in the Iliad, but then wasn't? You see, the Greeks built this horse, a giant wooden horse horse, apparently as an offering to Poseidon to give them safe passage home, which makes sense. Poseidon, I'm talking about Poseidon here. I should be saying Neptune. I'm sorry. It's an offering to Neptune. Neptune's the god of horses, so it makes sense to make a horse as an offering to Neptune. Um, But that's not really what the Greeks did. They shut some of their men inside. Now, the Trojans didn't know this, Um, They didn't know this then, but Aeneas knows this now, so as he's telling the story, he brings up some of these points, and then the Greeks sailed away, leaving this horse behind. The Trojans wonder what they should do about this horse. One, Thymoides, says that it should be brought into the city, but another, Copy, says it should be pushed into the sea. Still others suggest maybe burning it? The Trojans argue until one, Lacaon, uh, sorry, Laocaon, comes running out of the city. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts, he shouts. Okay, it's not exactly that famous line. It's more along the lines of, I fear the Greeks, even when they're giving gifts. And then he takes a spear and throws it at the belly of the horse. Now, it doesn't pierce the wood, but it does ring hollow. Literally, which, I mean, maybe should have been a sign that something was going on. But before the Trojans get a chance to discuss what the hollow sound might mean, some shepherds come dragging a Greek Greek captive behind them. His name is Sinon. He begs the Trojans to take him in. Ulysses hates him. You probably know Ulysses better by his Greek name, Odysseus. Ulysses hates him. The Greeks had decided to use him as a human sacrifice, so he ran away. Clearly, the Greeks aren't as noble as the Trojans. All of this is, of course, a lie. Sinon has been left behind on purpose. But Priam believes the tale and orders Sinon to be released. He then asks, why the horse? And Sinon explains. 
Remember that time that Diomedes and Ulysses sneaked into Troy and stole the Palladium, that big statue from the Temple of Minerva? How they desecrated the whole temple? The horse is to make recompense for those crimes. Now again, I don't know why this makes sense. It's a horse. Neptune and horses go together. Minerva slash Athena. Minerva in horses, not, not so much, but whatever. That's the story that they've come up with. And Sinon is a good storyteller. Trust me, the things that I just summarized in those last couple of paragraphs go on for pages. Sinon is such a good storyteller that everyone believes everything he says. But the day just goes from bad to worse. Laocoon, the man who threw his spear at the horse, happens to be a priest of Neptune. He prepares to sacrifice a bull, but before he is able to, two red-bellied serpents come out of the sea and strangle him and his sons, which is just excessive. There is a statue of this event in the Vatican Museum. I believe I found a royalty-free picture that I can share on the blog. If not, I will link to some pictures for you. Magnificent, magnificent ancient statue, and it is heartbreaking. Um, Now, the Trojans take this as a sign that the horse really is a gift for Minerva and not for Neptune, because why would the serpents have killed the priest of Neptune if the horse was supposed to go to Neptune, right? Um, So they do what that first suggestion was and roll the horse into the city. Cassandra, who you should recall is the prophetess doomed to always tell the truth and never be believed, begs them to stop, but of course they ignore her warnings. The Trojans' party celebrating the end of the war and their supposed victory. Meanwhile, Sinon opens the door and lets the hidden Greeks out. Thysandrus, Sthenelus, and Ulysses, uh, Akamos, Thos, Neoptolemus, and Macaon, and Menelaus, and Apios. I mean, it's not as though the entire Greek force could fit inside. They're just here to make it easier for the rest of the Greeks to get into the city, too. Having partied hard, Aeneas goes to bed. Hector's ghost comes to him in a dream. Doomed, the voice says. Troy is doomed. Hector tells Aeneas to take his household gods and get out of Dodge. Aeneas wakes up to discover that Hector's ghost is right. The Greeks have invaded, and the city is on fire. And even though Hector has just told him to run away, Aeneas doesn't. He grabs his weapons and joins the fray. He gathers a small band and they manage to overpower some of the Greeks. They dress themselves in the Greek armor and use that guise to pick off more of the Greeks. And I just can't help but imagine Luke Skywalker and Han Solo in (laughs) their stormtrooper costumes and when they're trying to rescue Princess Leia. Um, That's me. (laughs) Anyway, the Greeks overrun the palace, which is pretty brutal. Cassandra is dragged out of the Temple of Minerva, where she was hiding. Pyrrhus, also known as Neoptolemus, finds Priam praying and kills him at the altar. Aeneas watches all of this from the walls, kind of like we've seen before in the Iliad. Uh, Crazy how that works. And he realizes that maybe he should have listened to Hector's ghost after all. He runs home to rescue his own father and his wife and their son. On his way, he sees Helen and he stops and thinks about how this is all her fault when it isn't, but you know, and he thinks that it's so unfair 
fair that she's going to get to go home to Sparta and everyone here in Troy is going to be murdered or enslaved, right? Um, and he thinks that maybe he should just kill her. But you know how Venus feels about Helen and also how protective she is of her son. So she tells Aeneas to leave Helen alone and focus on his own family. And Aeneas is usually pretty good about doing what his mom tells him to do, so he continues on. Aeneas gets home and tells his father, Anchises, that they're leaving. Anchises insists that he's too old, so Aeneas picks him up and carries him. And there is a magnificent Bernini statue of Aeneas holding Anchises, who is holding their household gods, while Ascanius, Aeneas's son, is at their side. I will also try and find a picture of that to share on the blog. So far, I haven't found a royalty-free one, but again, if not, I will link you to some photos. Creusa, Aeneas's wife, follows, or she tries to. She doesn't make it. I'd say spoiler alert, but I'm guessing you already figured that out since she's not in Carthage. They get out of the city, well, except for Creusa, but after getting his father and son to safety, Aeneas does go back for her. But it's too late. All he finds is her ghost. She tells him not to grieve. She tells him his exile will be long, but it will be fruitful, and not to worry about her. She is, after all, <laughs> the daughter-in-law of Venus, and the gods will care for her in death. But to his credit, Aeneas does mourn. He does cry for his dead wife, and he returns to his father and to their son and to the band of surviving Trojans. He picks up Anchises, and they set off on the start of their journey, and that is the end of book two. First, I just want to say that it is so hard to use the Roman names. As I was writing, I had to keep going back and correcting myself because we've spent so much time on the Greeks that I keep forgetting not to use the Greek names, and clearly I didn't catch all of them since I started talking about Poseidon instead of Neptune. Hopefully by the end of this epic, my brain and my tongue will be wrapped around the right names. If I used a Greek name in recording this, which I totally did, I apologize for the confusion. I lived in Rome. You'd think that the Roman names would roll off my tongue. I, you know, hang out at the Forum by the Temple of Juno. You used to be able to do that, by the way. You now have to pay an entry fee just to get to the, into the Forum, but it used to be a free archaeological site that you could wander around. Anyway, um... I know, also, that I said I'd try not to compare Virgil to Homer, but it's so hard. Especially since my marginalia from college includes tons of comments about how this epic compares to the earlier ones. And here's the thing. Virgil knew Homer. Not literally, but literarily. He knew the epics. They were some of his source material. And we will see how Virgil tries to fill in some of the gaps. I mean, in some ways, this is the ultimate Trojan War fanfic. For this book, I will try to limit my Homer-Virgil tangent to this, Hector's Ghost. If you've read this book already, you're aware that Hector's Ghost is described as, well, being in pretty bad shape, which is interesting because the Iliad makes it pretty clear that the gods preserved his body. So is the decomposition because we're past his funeral? <laughs> or, or maybe it's just for effect to get Aeneas to pay attention? I don't know. 
but it is a point where Virgil does break from descriptions in that earlier epic. Now, there really once was a whole epic cycle about the Trojan War, Greek epics, not Roman. Um, Greek epics written around the same time as the Iliad and the Odyssey, but those are the only two that have survived. So there once was a Greek epic about the whole Trojan horse thing. It just didn't make it through the ages. And what's kind of great about having Virgil tell us the story of the Trojan horse is that we get the Trojan perspective. It's not about the Greeks cleverly destroying Troy. It's about the horror that destruction wrought. And I'm not sure a Greek source would be as sympathetic to the losing side as the story Virgil has set out to weave. The part that stood out to me on this reading is when Laocoon throws his spear at the horse. I remember the whole snake thing. That's a pretty memorable story. You think Laocoon, you think snakes. I'd forgotten about the horse ringing hollow. But should that even mean anything? It's a big horse. There are nine fully armed, fully grown men inside. Sure, the Trojans don't know that detail, but the horse still has to be big enough to hold them. So it's big. It's not like it's been carved out of a single tree. So should the Trojans have even been surprised that it was hollow, even if they didn't know the reason it might be hollow? Is the detail there just to show that Laocoon was on the right page, even if he's punished for it? I don't know. I'd also like to talk a little bit about Laocoon and Cassandra. Both of them are warning the Trojans about the horse. Leave it be. But their punishments are different. Laocoon and his sons are killed. But Cassandra is just ignored. Well, I mean, and then enslaved by the Greeks, but that would have happened whether or not she foresaw the truth. We know the story of Cassandra's curse, but it is still interesting how differently these two prophets are treated by the gods. And I at least have to ask what this might say about gender. People might have listened to Laocaon, but they'll never listen to Cassandra. We've got potentially serious mansplaining going on here, except it has disastrous consequences for both Laocaon and Cassandra. So what stands out to you in this book? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes, depending on your platform. The link to my Patreon is there, too, should you feel so inclined. No pressure. In the next episode, we'll look at Book 2, Chapter 2 of the Bibliotheca about Proteus and the Proteides. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.